You guys can uh, you guys can grab a seat. You want to pray for me? Yeah. Sweet. I need it. I need it. Me too. Will you pray with me over Andrew before he uh, gives us the word this morning? Father God, thanks for our brother Andrew here. Thanks for his light and life and just the salt that he is to all of us. And Lord, we just pray that you would fill him with the Holy Spirit and that your power would allow him to say exactly what you have in mind for us today. I pray that his word was would fall on soft hearts, Lord, and that your word for your people would reach the places of our hearts that maybe have been uh, hidden away or dark for a while, Lord, because you don't uh, shame us when you uncover things. You just give us grace, Lord, and love, and you look at us with adoration um, as we do you, Lord. So we just pray that uh, Andrew would give your word for your people this morning. If that there's anything you'd like him to say, that he would just say it, Lord. And if there's anything you don't want him to say that he planned to say, you would strike it from his memory, Lord. So pray all these things in your name. Pray your blessing over Andrew. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. <coughs> Uh, the first thing that I, I want to say, I was down in, in Breakwater in the gym at 9 o'clock, uh, and the, the screen in there is a little bit closer and a little bit bigger, and when I popped up on the screen, my first thought was like, is that how I look? Is, is it? Is it? Is, do I really look like, and nobody told me? <laughs> Uh, so that was like a little bit of an eye-opener. Um, so if you didn't notice, there was like 200 kids that walked through here not too long ago. Um, if you didn't catch it, they had palm branches. So if you missed it, uh, it's Palm Sunday today, uh, which is the, the week before Easter. Uh, and today we get to walk into Jerusalem with Jesus. Now, what's interesting about Luke, uh, so the, the palm branches, and you heard Marin shouting Hosanna in that song. Uh, Hosanna means save us. It's this, this command to save us. Uh, and over time, this word was used and used and used and used and used uh, until it meant just like Savior, calling somebody a Savior. Kind of like uh, when I say, hey, how are you? Really, I'm just saying hi. I'm not really asking you how you are. I'm just, you know, saying hi. That's, that's what that has come to mean over time. And then when you say I'm good, you don't really mean I'm good. You mean hi back. Like that's just over time we say those words and that's kind of what they have, have grown to mean. Um, and we do try to really ask, how are you? So we really know. Um, but over time, that's kind of what those words mean. That's what Hosanna, happened with Hosanna. Uh, save us, save us. Then it became this term of praise for the Savior. Uh, and, and so when, when the people uh, were shouting Hosanna as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, they're saying, Savior. Not only that, save us. You are the only one who could. So it's this recognition of who Jesus is. And what's interesting is the other Gospels share that, that account of, of what happened when Jesus was walking into Jerusalem. Luke doesn't include that detail, which doesn't mean it didn't happen. Uh, it's just the detail that Luke kind of decided to leave out. Um, <clears throat> during our conversation time at the tables today, I had asked you to think about a time or a thing or a, a place or a, a role that you wanted to be when you grew up as a kid. Now, we've all got these dreams and expectations, these hopes when we're kids, right? Uh, by the way, kids in the room, there are some coloring kits over there on the left side of that wall if you'd like a coloring kit. There's crayons and coloring books and that kind of stuff. So parents, if you want to grab those, or adults, whatever. Um, I know I can be a little bit boring. If you miss the palm branches, you're not going to hear anything I said. Uh, so anyway, uh, so we've all got these hopes and dreams and expectations when we're, when we're kids. I had pretty low standards um, when I was in elementary school, we took the, uh, like the, the career path, the career finder tests. You answer all these questions about, about who you are and, and how you act in certain situations and all this kind of stuff, and then it tells you what you should be when you grow up. 
And like the four times I took it in elementary school, uh, the top two were always like stunt double uh, and garbage man. Um, And those are both really great career paths. But as you can see, I didn't end up in either of those. So like, I had these hopes and expectations, and some people are like, I want to be an astronaut. Uh, that, was, that was shared today. Uh, some people want to be a doctor. Um, and so when you're, when you're a kid, you have these hopes and these expectations. Now, in elementary school, what you're worried about is uh, how long you get to play in the playground, Right? When do we have to come in? You know, when, when is too late to be out playing in the backyard? When you're a kid, you don't have the, the, the burden of responsibilities and convictions that we have as adults. Now, in elementary school, you think, when I'm in middle school, I'm going to have it all figured out, right? I might think about, like, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or something like that. Um, and you, like, you, you, you don't have that, like, childish recess anymore. That's, like, for babies now that you're in middle school. But you think, when I'm in high school, I'm going to have it all figured out. I'm going to have a cool job. I'm going to have a cool car. I'm going to have like a, you know, a convertible. That would be awesome in high school. Uh, I had a Honda Accord 1990 with 330,000 miles on it that I, yeah, that I bought for, I know, right, right, that I bought for $150 and I drove it until the wheel fell off. Um, after spray painting it fluorescent lime green, spending more money on spray paint than I spent on the car itself. So the whole drive a cool car, have a cool job didn't work out for me in high school. But when you're in high school, you realize I'm not, you know, maybe a big fish in a little pond, but I'm kind of like an average fish in like an average sized pond. You kind of realize that there's a lot more people in the world than you thought. And, 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 and you realize some of the things you didn't know you didn't know when you were in elementary school, now you know you don't know them. And you think, when I'm in college... I'm going to get a standard four-year degree. It's going to be perfectly easy. Going to get my dream job. And then when you get to college, you're like, what the heck happened? Because it's been seven years. And I still don't have a major. (laughs) And you switch your major like two or three times. And it doesn't end up getting you like the job that you thought you would when you went into it. You know, and you you go in your freshman year. You're like, yeah, four-year degree. Going to get my dream job. And the seniors are like, should we tell them that that's not how it's going to actually work out? Uh, But then when you get to be an adult, you realize all this time you thought you'd have it figured out. And parents, I'm sorry to ruin this, but we don't have it figured out. Like you get to be an adult and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just kind of like figuring it out as I go. And I don't know if any of you have experienced that same thing. Uh, but like when, when you grow up, the only thing that I really took from like my household was that uh, when you have a bunch of plastic bags from Meyer, you put them all in one plastic bag and then you put that under the sink or in the pantry, right? All right who does that? Right, right. That's what you learned growing up, like everybody in the room. Uh, but you get to be an adult, and, and, and you remember when you were a kid, you're like, when I'm an adult, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat ice cream for dinner every day. I'm going to eat cake for lunch. I'm going to have sleepovers with my best friend. I'm going to live next to my best friend. We're going to have two mansions and like an underground tunnel between our houses with like a garage and cool spy cars, and we're going to have sleepovers and all this kind of stuff. And then you get to be an adult, and you're like, wait, I want to do stuff, but that stuff costs money. So then you got to hunt for a job, and then you start working, and if you don't get a job that you like, you end up doing things you don't like to do to spend money on things you do like to do, but you have to spend all this time on stuff you don't want to do so you can afford the things you do want to do, and it becomes this this cycle of what you thought was going to be freedom, uh, but it's not quite what you expected. You want to do everything you want to do because you're an adult. You can. Like, you guys, as an adult, you can scream just about anywhere. It's not illegal. Like, you can You'd probably be escorted out of wherever you are, but you could if you wanted to. But 
you get to be an adult and you realize things aren't exactly as you thought they were when you were, you were a kid. Life maybe gets harder for, for a lot of people. And even if expectations aren't met, a lot of ways, my life is way better than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I'm married to uh, uh, my high school sweetheart, um, and it is more messy and more beautiful than I thought marriage could ever be. And I, it's wonderful. And some things are different. I thought I was going to be a stunt double living in a mansion next to Mark. <laughs> that didn't happen. I live in a really small house in Granville. And I love it. It's, but it's different. Uh, Jesus today finally arrives at Jerusalem. Luke has been building this narrative of Jesus approaching Jerusalem for 10 chapters now. That's a big part of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the presence of God uh, entering into the holy city. And then when Luke writes Acts, uh, the presence of God goes from Jerusalem into the ends of the earth. But now Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem, and that's where we're going to kind of pick up the story. But when he gets there, he looks over the city, and kind of like when we become an adult and things aren't like, they, like we thought it was going to be, Jerusalem, the holy city of God, the capital of God's holy nation, is just not what it was supposed to be. And Jesus is met with that reality. Granted, he probably knew. But he's met with that reality. So we're going to dive in to Luke chapter 19. Uh, and I'm going to read 19, 28 through 48. But I'm just going to kind of stop along the way and pause. And we're going to dive in a little bit deeper. And we're going to come back to this moment where Jesus has this overwhelming realization about the reality of Jerusalem, the reality of God's people. So uh, it's going to be up on the screen here. It, it, wow, it is. Uh, at your tables is the NIV. I'm reading out of the ESV. It'll be just a little bit different, but you'll be able to follow along. So, this is right after Jesus just got done teaching. Uh, we read chapter 19, verse 28. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, these are cities right outside of Jerusalem, at the mount that's called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it. And bring it here. Now, he's up on the Mount of Olives at this point, And I think I've got, I think I might have a picture up here. Okay, so this is going to be really small. Um, but this is, this is about where Jesus was standing. Now, you see this really big slab there is uh, called the Temple Mount, uh, which is in Jerusalem. This is, this is the holy city uh, not too long ago. Um, on the left side of the Temple Mount, you actually will see a Muslim mosque on the left side. Uh, and that big golden dome is called the, the Dome of the Rock. Now, in that place, in that dome, um, it, is, it is important to the, the Jewish faith, the Christian faith, and the Islamic faith. Um, this is thought to be uh, where Abraham stood when he was going to sacrifice Isaac. And also, uh, it's thought to be where the Muslim prophet Muhammad began his journey to heaven. Now, it's also thought to be, this is like a huge moment, uh, or a, hu a huge place, huge significance to, uh, to a lot of people. It's thought to be where, where creation started. Now, whether or not some of those things are true, we don't, we don't know for sure. Uh, now, you're, you're sitting up on the Mount of Olives, uh, that golden dome. The temple is no longer there. It was destroyed. It used to be taller than that. Uh, now, for, for just... Um, reference point. Uh, if you look on the Temple Mount, you'll see a bunch of stuff. Like It looks like little, uh, little buildings kind of cropping around, and you'll see a little dot to the left of the trees, but to the, like right beneath the entrance of that mosque there. Um, that little speck is me. 
I'm just kidding. It's not actually me, but that would be really cool, wouldn't it? I, did, I, was, I was there at one point. Uh, but this is what Jesus would be seeing, minus some of the buildings in the background. Now, you would go down the Kidron Valley and up towards the temple. Jesus would have made this trek uh, at least once a year as a faithful Jewish man. So this is where Jesus and his disciples are. So Jesus says, go into the village in front of you, uh, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. A colt, uh, the Old Testament sets up uh, a colt, especially one that's never been ridden, as this uh, something, an animal qualified to perform this sacred act. This is a sacred moment. So this, this colt was specifically set up for Jesus to ride. He continues, verse 31, If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, or those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. There's two schools of thought on, on why and how that whole thing worked out. The first one was that Jesus knew that it would be there uh, to fulfill the prophecies told in the Old Testament. If you read the book of Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 9.9, 9, uh, he mentions this, this cult. So either Jesus knew it was there and sent his disciples to pick it up, or Jesus had it prearranged. So he had been in contact with the people who owned this colt and owned this place, said, hey, I'm going to be stopping by. Uh, I'll need this colt if that's all right with you. Uh, And if they were followers, they probably would have said yes. And either way, prophecies are being fulfilled from the Old Testament, written uh, thousands of years before this moment happened. They're being fulfilled now. And we keep reading. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, this is verse 33, why are you untying the colt? Uh, 34, and they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt as a sort of saddle, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, for a moment, let's, let's think about Jesus riding on a colt. The second person of the Trinity who has existed forever in the flesh, riding on a colt. Now, a colt is a particularly non-militaristic animal. And what's happening in the culture uh, right now is that Rome is this oppressive superpower, and so corruption is happening in the church and in the people of God. Uh, and Jesus was thought the, to be the one who was supposed to come from the Old Testament and overthrow Rome and cast them out of this holy land. Get rid of them. Set Israel once again on top of the world, but Jesus comes on a colt with no army and no sword. And his disciples are praising. They welcome him as a king, but they were not ready for the king that he was. Now, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were these, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, so basically acting on behalf of, of God's people, were saying, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop shouting out. Now, earlier in Luke, every time Jesus did something, he would tell uh, the people that were involved, hey, don't tell anyone. Not yet. Here, he says, if, the, if, they, if these were silent, he says, the very stones would cry out. Luke is putting a lot of emphasis on this 
story. Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, the holy capital of the holy nation, God's people. This is where the presence of God, the presence of the most high God, the creator dwells in Jerusalem. Now, the Pharisees thought that the disciples, people following Jesus, that their words were sacrilegious. Like, you can't, you can't praise this guy. You can't, what are you doing? And the story continues. Verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Uh, Forty years after this, give or take, this prophecy that Jesus gave came true and the temple was demolished, leaving the mount that you, you saw there, that platform. The temple was destroyed. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. You have made it into a den of robbers. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they didn't find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. All of these people from around the known world are flocking to Jerusalem right now for the Passover feast. The celebration of God bringing his people out of slavery. All these people are here hanging on Jesus' words and the religious leaders want to kill him. And they're thinking, well, we can't because there's going to be uprising. There's going to be an uproar and commotion that we can't handle. And so they're scheming and thinking of ways that they can kill Jesus. In this moment, as they're treating him as king, Jesus is confirmed and affirmed as the coming Messiah, the king of Israel. What does the king think of this kingdom? Jesus wept. He looks over God's holy city, the capital of God's holy nation, the people who were supposed to be a blessing to the world, and he weeps. Why? We won't spend too much time going through it, but we're going back to the beginning. When there was nothing, there was God, and he created. And when creation exploded into existence and he made humanity, we walked with him. We walked with the infinitely transcendent king of the universe in the cool of the day, in the beautiful garden of Eden where everything was anything we could have wanted. It was the dream. And he set up just a few, a few guidelines for us. To, you know, okay, I want you to name the animals. All right, we can do that. Uh, I want you to tend the garden, bring, bring order out of the chaos of this creation. Uh, just oversee it, kind of look over it. Uh, and then this tree right here, not for you. Just, just don't, don't touch that tree. But instead of following the transcendent king creator of the universe, thinking like, all right, you are probably infinitely wise and and infinitely knowledgeable and you probably know what's best since you kind of made us and everything around us, but I want to choose my way. I'm going to do things my way and and not your way. And so humanity, Adam and Eve, uh, decided to choose this path of isolation from God. 
And then, all right, God had every right to leave us right there, but instead he gave us the law. And we always say it like law, like there's all these rules and regulations about what we can and can't eat, can and can't wear, but these were life-giving instructions so that as we walk, we can come into contact with the God of the universe again. And what did we do? We took it for ourselves. And we said, you know, I know, God, you want us to be a nation that blesses others and helps others come into your fold, but instead, we're going to use this law to oppress others. We're going to drive them out of our land. And so we set ourselves apart from the nations, oppressing others instead of lifting others up and being a blessing. And again, God could have left us there, and he didn't. Jesus looks over Jerusalem like a father looks over Jerusalem his daughter, or his son, when that daughter or son has gone astray. When that daughter or son has chosen a destructive path. Jesus sees all of the potential that that could have been for Israel, that was meant to be for Israel and God's people, and instead we squandered it away so that we could make ourselves look good and take what wasn't ours to take. And so he looks over this city and he weeps because we have not just chosen to ignore God, but we have chosen to reject peace. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem seeing the brokenness of the world, seeing the brokenness of God's chosen people. He weeps because the world was broken. Fast forward almost 2,000 years, the world is still broken. And we know this because we can look around in our lives, in our relationship, we can look around at the world around us and see it. Not only can we see the brokenness, but I could probably say confidently, everybody in this room has experienced that brokenness. And I'm not just saying we're all bad people, right? But the brokenness of the reality that there are people that we have loved who are no longer walking with us. There are people in our congregation who are, who are wrestling for their lives, battling cancer. We know the world is broken because we look around and we can see that it's broken. Uh, children who are meant to, meant to enjoy the whimsical nature of creation uh, and explore new worlds with their imaginations are often riddled now with sorrows, anxieties, and depression. We know the world is broken. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because Jesus knows Jerusalem, Israel, God's people need a Savior. 2,000 years later, my question for us is, do we know we, we need a Savior? And not just, from, not just from sin, but ourselves, from brokenness. Because I think if Jesus were to look over creation now, he would still weep because the world is still broken. And he's making all things new, and we're gonna, we have a taste of that. Uh, next week, we're going to celebrate Easter and the resurrection, and that is a, a, re, a renewing season that we get a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection we'll share in eternity, where all things will be made well. But it's not complete yet. My question is, do we know we need a Savior? And the, the second part of that question is, are we willing to associate with that Savior? You see, God saw the brokenness of the world and said, I still want my name to be associated with my people, even though oftentimes they suck. And that's bizarre. That's crazy. So my question is, do we know we need a Savior, and are we willing to associate with that Savior, with the man acquainted with sorrows? We know the world is broken because life has gotten harder. And for some of us in this room, maybe it's as hard as it's ever been. 
today we get to celebrate baptism. Baptism is this direct assault against the brokenness of this world. Proclaiming that I am unwilling to participate in the brokenness, but I'm going to be associated with the crucified Messiah. For Connor and for Bailey this morning, I don't know where Bailey went, that's right. Oh, hey. You're going to be buried with Christ's death and raised in his resurrection. New life. You'll be marked as Christ's own. Which means when, when you are walking around, you bear the name of Christ on your back. And the world's going to hate it. They're going to see that, that you carry yourself with value because you're valued. And you carry uh, yourself valuing others because others have value. And the world's not going to get it. And you might, you might, you might speak with others differently than, uh, than you did before. Uh, now, I want you to know this is not salvation. This doesn't save you. The waters are not our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. So these, these three questions. One, do we know we need a Savior? Two, are we willing to associate ourselves with that Savior, the crucified Messiah? And then three, are we willing to be a people who stand in opposition to the brokenness of this world? That's the proclamation you're making this morning. That you are to be a people willing, even through uncomfortable situations, to stand in opposition to the brokenness of this world. That's a big task for all of us. And the world isn't going to get it. And I want you to know that it'll be hard. It's not going to be easy. Like God's people throughout history, throughout the Bible, we're going to want to go back. We're going to want to relive the sins of our ancestors over and over again, choosing isolation instead of choosing the peace of Jesus Christ, who is making all things new. But it's all right to fail. And we will. I do. I think everybody in this room does. But today you'll be marked as Christ's own. Christ's own. 